This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Without further action, we are headed to a 2.8 degree increase. And the consequences, as we all know, would be devastating. Several parts of our planet would be uninhabitable, and for many, it will mean a death sentence. That's UN Chief Antonio Guterres on the impact if nations fail to abide by their commitments to limit global temperature rise. Details coming up. Also, U.S. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is making a 10-day tour of three African nations. Gambia's vice president has died of illness in India. And a mob angry at the killing of a Catholic priest in Nigeria torched a police station. We have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story, speaking at the World Economic Forum in the Swiss Alpine village of Davos. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned the world was flirting with climate disaster. He challenged the gathering of political and business leaders to act now to create conditions for long-term solutions to these and other global threats. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. UN Chief Antonio Guterres did not sugarcoat the scale of the problems, describing what he called the sorry state of the world. He presented a bleak picture of a global economy in crisis that was facing recession in many parts of the world. While the world was emerging from COVID-19, he warned it was not prepared to tackle future pandemics. The Secretary General spoke of the misery inflicted upon millions by conflict, violence and war especially the Russian invasion of Ukraine, not only because of the untold suffering of the Ukrainian people, but because of its profound global implications on global food and energy prices, on trade and supply chains, on questions of nuclear safety, and on the very foundations of international law and the United Nations Charter. Guterres said the world was flirting with climate disaster. He said greenhouse gas emissions are at record levels and growing. He blamed it on nations failing to abide by their commitments to limit global temperature rise to one and a half degrees. Without further action, we are headed to a 2.8 degree increase. And the consequences, as we all know, would be devastating. Several parts of our planet would be uninhabitable. And for many, it will mean a death sentence. The UN chief expressed concern about the deepening north-south divide, adding the wealthier world and their leaders seemingly did not truly grasp the degree of frustration and anger in the southern part of the globe. Frustration and anger about the gross inequity of vaccine distribution in the recent past. Frustration and anger about a climate crisis that is crippling countries that contributed least to global heating and the lack of the financial resources to respond to the challenge. The United Nations chief said the world must unite to find solutions to globally interlinked problems. 
Unfortunately, he said, that was unlikely to happen, as the world faced the gravest levels of geopolitical division and mistrust in generations, and that, he said, was undermining everything. Guterres appealed to his powerful, influential audience to help find a way to come together to bridge these divisions and restore trust. He added, the cost of inaction was far greater than the cost of action. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen late, later this week begins a 10-day tour of three African nations, Senegal, Zambia, and South Africa. Her visit follows a U.S.-Africa summit in December in Washington, the first in eight years, where the U.S. made investment pledges worth $55 billion over three years and backed the idea of the African Union joining the G20 permanently. Danielle Resnick is a David Rubenstein Fellow at Brookings. She's a political scientist whose research focuses on the political economy of development with a regional specialization in sub-Saharan Africa. Douglas Mpuga reached her for reaction to the U.S. Treasury Secretary's visit. I think it's extremely important to at least show that the U.S. was serious about you know, some of the commitments that it made in the December summit. One of the main concerns, I think, coming out of that summit is that there wouldn't be much follow-through and, and that uh, the U.S. would lose momentum in engaging with the continent. So I think this visit is a clear attempt to show that that's not true, that there will continue to be a U.S. engagement with the continent, um, including on really important issues that I think African governments are most concerned about, particularly uh, debt, addressing debt, addressing food security and inflation. Um, and broader economic growth. Even many in Africa were skeptical because those are very concerning issues in Africa. Uh, but the fact yeah. that the U.S. is sending the Treasury Secretary, uh, how do you think that rates in the priorities of the U.S. government? Well, I mean, the Treasury Secretary is quite high-ranking. Um, and I think when you when you look at the trajectory that we've seen over the past six months with, uh, you know, the Secretary of State visiting back in August, uh, having this high-level summit in December, and then Janet Yellen uh, traveling now. Uh, she'll be followed then by the IMF uh, president in, in a few weeks. Um, I think that really shows, um, you know, that the U.S. sees this as a really critical continent and that there's a lot of exciting things going on in the region, but also, you know, economic growth in the region um, needs to be prioritized and needs to be supported um, by particularly addressing economic debt issues. Many analysts in Africa are concerned about China's influence and what they refer to as the debt trap of China to Africa. And the Chinese foreign minister was visiting several African countries. How did that timing factor in in Yellen's visit? Well, I think this was already planned several months ago, um, the trip. So I, I'm not sure if there was a, a, an intentional aim to, to have this coincide right after the Chinese foreign minister's visit. Um, but I do think that will be a counter-narrative um, that Secretary Yellen will be portraying, that, um, you know, the West is there to, to help um, African countries uh, deal with their debt issues um, and, and likely perhaps, uh, you know, portraying that narrative again about China being a barrier to debt relief um, for several African countries. Um, of course, she's visiting Zambia, which is being heralded as really a kind of a test case for uh, debt relief and debt forgiveness. 
Um, and there's several other countries, of course, that, that now um, are in severe debt distress, like Ghana, uh, Ethiopia, and, and some are concerned about Kenya in the near future. So I think she will uh, likely be trying to, to present that narrative that the West, particularly the U.S., is there to, to support African countries address their debt issues and be a, you know, a counterweight to uh, China's rather difficult uh, relations with African countries on debt relief issues. Another concern is energy extraction in Africa, given that U.S.'s concern is to, have, to encourage green energy. How do you see this one working out? Yes, I think that's that, you know, underscores some of the countries that she's visiting in addition to Zambia, which is dealing with the debt issues. I mean, targeting South Africa um, among one of the countries she's visiting, which is really uh, struggling with this transition from from a coal based uh, energy sector and trying to transition to a more green based sector. Um, and it's, you know, being seen as one of the uh, pivotal case studies for the Just Energy Transition Partnership um, that was kind of bolstered at COP27. In, in November. Um, so I think her uh, focus during her tour is really going to be looking at opportunities for the US government to be supporting African nations with their energy transition, um, encouraging uh, this continued push coming out of COP for, for more green-based energy sources. And I think that will also be a key focus in, in Senegal as well, which of course um, has tremendous potential now with, with natural gas. That was Daniel Resnick, a David Rubenstein Fellow at Brookings and a political scientist whose research focuses on the political economy of development with a regional specialization in sub-Saharan Africa. She spoke with VOA's Douglas Mpuga from Washington. Malawi's president has fired the director of public prosecution, Stephen Kayuni, for allegedly abusing his office to avenge what he saw as a personal slight. Kayuni had the country's anti-corruption chief arrested last month after the chief said officials were interfering with her investigations. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre, Malawi. Malawian President Lazarus Chakwera announced the dismissal of Director of Public Prosecution Stephen Kayuni during a televised national address Wednesday. Chakwera was reacting to the findings of a commission of inquiry he established last month to find out the circumstances that led to the arrest of the country's anti-corruption chief, Martha Jizuma. The commission of inquiry found that police arrested Chizuma a few days after Kayuni complained to police that he felt criminally injured by statements Chizuma made in January 2022. In audio that was later leaked to social media, Chizuma said that high-ranking officials, including lawyers, judges, and government authorities, were hindering her fight against corruption. Chizuma was arrested on December 6th but detained for only a few hours following calls from other officials, ordinary Malawians, and the British and U.S. embassies for her release. The report from the Commission of Inquiry said Kayuni was wrong to file a personal complaint on matters pertaining to his office as Director of Public Prosecutions. The Commission asked President Chakwera to take appropriate action against Kayuni. As such, 
to prevent him from using a public office to settle a personal injury, I have removed Dr. Kayuni from office with immediate effect, and I thank him for his many years of service. Chakwela announced that he has appointed Masauko Edwin Chankakara as Malawi's new director of public prosecutions and he called on all government agencies to support the new government's chief prosecutor. Chakwela rejected the recommendation from the Commission of Inquiry that he should take some action against Chizuma for offenses she may have committed in her leaked audio. Chagwela said he already forgave Chizuma last year when some people wanted her fired. So I want to make this clear today. I stand by my decision not to fire Ms. Chizuma a year ago, and I stand by my choice of her as my champion against corruption today. However, Chakwela called for disciplinary action against two deputy police inspector generals, Haben Kandawire and Kaspar Jalera, for insubordination. The two police chiefs are accused of rejecting Chakwela's directive to release Chizuma unconditionally when she was arrested on December 6. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Police in Nigeria's central Niger state say a mob angry at the killing of a Catholic priest torched a police station, other buildings and cars, and threw stones at police yesterday, causing a number of injuries. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. State police spokesman Wasiu Abiodun said authorities are responding to the situation and have deployed reinforcements to the Paikoro district where the incident took place. He said the mob, including youths and women, marched from the slain priest's residence to a divisional police station and set it ablaze. Abiodun spoke to Vioe via phone. We have sent reinforcement there, the security men are on ground and where uh, investigation has commenced. So the, the, that is just what is on ground now. Uh, further development will be made known to the public. It is not clear how many people were injured during Tuesday's protests, but eyewitnesses told local media that police officers dispersed the demonstrators forcefully. The protesters blamed the police for not responding promptly to distress calls when the armed men attacked the cleric, Father Isaac Achi. On Sunday, armed men burned Achi inside his home in Paikoro after failing to break in. The attackers also shot at another priest fleeing the scene, but he survived. The motive behind Achi's killing remains unknown, but the incident triggered widespread criticism from religious groups, including the Christian Association of Nigeria, or CAN. CAN this week said authorities must decisively put an end to attacks on churches. In a separate incident on Sunday, gunmen attacked a church in northwest Katsina State and abducted nine people, including two children. In May, heavily armed men attacked a Catholic church in the southwestern town of Owa and killed 40 worshippers. Insecurity is a major problem bedeviling Africa's most populous nation weeks ahead of general elections scheduled for February 25th. Timothy Obezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. 
there you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. Gambia's vice president has died of illness in India, according to a statement by President Adama Baro. 65-year-old Badara Juf was appointed vice president last year and was previously education minister from 2017 to 2022. Al Jazeera says he left about three weeks ago to seek treatment and has not been seen for months before the trip. Juf was the fourth deputy to serve under Baro since his win in 2016 against former strongman Yaya Jame. Juf previously worked in the civil service and later in the World Bank as an education specialist for West and Central Africa. Cameroon's government has deployed troops to village on the border with Nigeria after clashes between Cameroonian separatists and Nigerian herders left at least 12 people dead. Cameroonian officials say the fighting broke out after herders who crossed the border in search of food for their cattle refused to pay taxes the rebels demanded. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Marua, Cameroon. Cameroon's military says it deployed at least 100 troops early Wednesday to Gayama, a village on the western border with Nigeria, after clashes between separatists and Nigerian herders. Abdullahi Aliyu is the highest-ranking government official in Menchum, the administrative unit in charge of Gayama. Aliyu says the fighting broke out six days ago when separatists stopped Nigerian herders who had crossed the border in search of pasture for their cattle and ordered them to pay tax. He says when the herders refused to pay, the rebels killed two of them on the spot. Aliyu says the surviving herders, who are ethnic Fulani from Taraba and Benue states, fled home and organized a counter-attack. He says the herders came back in huge numbers, attacked separatist camps and killed at least four fighters. Aliyu says six civilians, including the traditional ruler of Monkep village and his son, were killed in the clashes. Authorities say at least 20 civilians were injured and the herders killed scores of cattle and torched houses. The Roman Catholic Church in Menchum says scores of civilians fled Gayama and neighboring villages to avoid getting caught in clashes between separatists and the arriving troops. The governor of Cameroon's northwest region, Deben Chofo, says civilians should not fear the military. Speaking by telephone from the region's capital, Bamenda, he says villagers should help the troops by denouncing rebels hiding in their communities. The future is bright, provided we are united against the agents of chaos that are trying to hijack our youth, the forces are bringing themselves close to the population. That's the reason why, compared to last year, things are becoming more and more normal and normal, even if you still have some hot spots. Chofo said Cameroon's military would protect civilians in all border villages. Separatists on social media, including WhatsApp and Facebook, acknowledged they have been battling Nigerian herders 
who they say should respect their orders. This is not the first time Cameroon's Anglophone separatists have attacked Nigerians along the border. Last June, villagers in western Akwaye town said armed men believed to be rebels carried out a series of attacks that killed at least 30 people, including five Nigerian merchants. The separatists have been fighting since 2017 to carve out an English-speaking state from French-speaking majority Cameroon. The UN says the conflict has left more than 3,500 people dead and 750,000 displaced. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Marwa, Cameroon. In Senegal, two major traffic crashes in just eight days killed 62 people, reviving the question of road safety standards in Senegal and across Africa. The continent is home to the highest rate of road fatalities in the world. Experts blame a dangerous mix of poor infrastructure and driver education, as well as the low-quality imports, as Anika Hammerschlag reports from Dakar, Senegal. Rusted buses fill Dakar's roads at rush hour. Passengers hang off the back doors, while teenagers on rollerblades cling to the sides, dodging horse carts and unpainted speed bumps. There are no traffic lights or stop signs. Cars have the right-of-way, and pedestrians cross at high risk. Road conditions outside Senegal's major cities can feel even more dangerous, where packed buses barrel down two-lane potholed roads, the roofs piled with mountains of cargo and sheep. There are no medians or streetlights, and farm animals roam freely into unchecked traffic. On Monday, it was a donkey that caused a public bus to swerve and collide with a truck in the country's northern region of Luga. 22 people were killed and 28 injured. Just eight days prior, 40 people were killed and about 80 injured in a crash in Senegal's southeastern Kafrine region. A tire had burst, sending a passenger bus into the path of another oncoming bus. The government responded by banning night bus trips between districts and outlawed used tire imports. At 26.6 deaths per 100,000 people, Africa has the worst rate of traffic fatalities in the world, nearly triple that of Europe, according to a 2018 report by the World Health Organization. Christopher Cost is the Africa Program Director at the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy, an urban planning nonprofit. He says that in order to improve road safety, African countries need to shift public transportation business models. Because in so many African countries, we're still operating with the target system where driver incomes are directly related to the number of people they carry. And as a result, they rush as fast as possible to the destination. And that leads to a lot of the road safety challenges that we have. Switching to a salary system would incentivize drivers to drive safely instead of cramming their buses full and speeding to their destinations, Cost said. Carolyn Mimano is a partnerships manager, also with the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. Public transport could be further improved by limiting the age of buses, increasing bus inspections, and capping driver hours, she said. Within cities, governments have many options to improve safety. African city streets are shared by cars, pedestrians, cyclists, street vendors, and even horse carts. Yet planning efforts focus only on vehicles, Mimano said. Pedestrians in Africa represent 40% of all road traffic deaths, compared to 23% globally, according to the WHO. We still have a car-centric approach to transport planning. Even with road crashes, we think that the solution is to expand the road, and that doesn't really solve the problem. What actually happens is people speed more. 
Improvement is possible. Mamano points to Rwanda's capital, Kigali, which has speed cameras and salaried bus drivers, and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, which has elevated pedestrian crosswalks, wide sidewalks, and 21 kilometers of dedicated bus lanes. Nika Henry is the head of the United Nations Road Safety Fund. Africa and its development partners must prioritize road safety in their national budgets at a level that is commensurate to the burden and develop and implement national road safety programs in a way that engages all of the government, including health, transport, education, finance and trade sectors. Senegal sees an average of 745 road fatalities per year, with most deadly accidents occurring at night, according to Senegal's Information Bureau. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. Um... Uh-huh.